Uh, This morning we're going to return to the last paragraph of Ephesians chapter 4, which describes for us the life of the one created anew by faith and repentance, created according to God in righteousness and holiness. So if you'll join me there in Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read verses 25 through verse 32 and then give attention to verses 31 and 32 to close out this paragraph. All of these things that we've read and studied in recent weeks have been straightforward. Paul has left little room for confusion, little room for our lack of obedience due to anything that we might misunderstand. We can be thankful for the simplicity of what Paul has said when he writes in the 25th verse, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would Take your word and open it to our understanding, even as we have just saying that you would indeed break the bread of life unto us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've thought it helpful and have tried to start each one of these sermons with a reminder concerning the place of obedience like this to which Paul is calling us. Paul is not here saying that by being obedient to these commands that we are finding a standing before God or keeping a standing before God. I want to read something to you that Joel Beakey has written along these same lines, so helpful. He says that holiness is both something you have before God in Christ And at the same time, something you must cultivate in the strength of Christ. Now this next sentence that I'm going to read to you from Joel Beakey. If the Lord were to so give you and I grace enough to really and fully and truly understand it. How much confusion, how much anxiety in the Christian life would be lost to us. This is what he says. Your status in holiness is conferred upon you. Your condition in holiness is what is to be pursued. So, this is what he's saying. When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
when we express faith and repentance in him, at that moment, we are justified in the sight of God based upon Christ's finished work for us. All of his obedience, all of his righteousness is conferred upon us. It is given to us free of charge. No amount of works or anything else has earned it for us. But to go on from that, the second part of what he says speaks to our condition in holiness. This is what is to be pursued. This is what we are going after. This is why we are obedient to scriptures like this. This is why as Christians we no longer lie to one another. This is why we no longer steal, why we no longer let corrupt words proceed out of our mouths. And I was reading this week also in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Given those realities, he says something there of both of those that can render the salt and the light of the world and the earth as inoperative, if you will. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. A light is not to be hidden under a basket, but to be set on a hill so that all can see it. So if you will make the connection with me concerning these things that Paul has told us are things that we pursue in holiness. As a Christian, as a professing Christian, if you do not distance yourself from these types of sin, sins detailed in verses 25 through verse 32, then you as salt are losing your saltiness. And you as light are losing the light and the impact on those around you. You make the connection? A professing Christian who lies, steals, speaks corruptly, does all of these things, how salty is he? How much light is he or she giving off? And it may bring into question the very essence or nature of salvation at all. And so when we look at these things, we see that right here towards the end, we read last week, and I want to spend a little more time here before we move on into verses 31 and 32, because Paul mentions something here about grieving the Spirit of God. Grieving the Spirit of God. This is one of the most clear places in all the Scripture that teaches us that the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, is a person that can be grieved. Just like you can grieve your spouse or your child or children, how you can grieve your parents, the Spirit of God that has indwelt the believer can be grieved by persisting in these type of sins, especially corrupt speech. That's the verse that immediately precedes it. And interestingly, the verses that follow have to do with the same, the corrupt nature of our speech to some degree or another. So when you think about this, I think that this thought that he is a person that can be grieved is meant to catch our attention. 
I don't know any professing Christian that would say, yes, it is my, my goal or aim in life to grieve the Spirit of God in me that has so worked grace in me. None of us would rightly say that. And what we need to recognize is that grieving Him comes with consequence. And last week we pointed to this when we said, or when I quoted to you those words from Curtis Vaughn that talked about the miserable Christian. The Christian that seems to have no joy, no patience, no kindness, very little of those manifest fruit evidences that Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. Could it be that we find ourselves in such condition because we have grieved the Spirit of God in us that produces such fruit by these very things that we find in this paragraph? Very often, that's likely the case in our life. But notice what Paul says here about the Spirit. Other than that, he can be grieved. The motive here for not grieving him is because it is by the Spirit we have been sealed for the day of redemption. There is a finality of a stamp that has been placed upon us by the Spirit of God in Christ that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. The thought here, I think, is that he has marked us as his own with view to the day when he will finally and fully redeem us before God and take us to be with him in a place where there is no sin. So the great motive here for obedience is not to gain a standing of justification before God, but to seek to obey him by grace so as not to grieve his spirit. Now, if you look forward with me in verses 31 and 32, what we're going to see here in the first verse is a list, a progressive list that grows worse as you read it. Each one of these words magnify and build upon the one that immediately precedes it. And by the time we get down to the end of verse 31, Paul is talking about all types of malice. These are things that should not be found in the heart and in the life of a Christian. But what if they are? What if after we read this verse, you realize all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice has not been put away from me? What do you do? You repent. Before God, we, we did a great study in the past few weeks on repentance in our first hour meeting, I want to summarize some of that for you here, especially concerning this day, the first Sunday of this month, being the Sunday that we commemorate the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to ask forgiveness of sin? Is it something that I merely do in passing and then can have full assurance that God has forgiven my sin? Well, let's give some type of definition to what repentance is. Repentance is first and foremost, just by the strict definition of the word, a change of mind. You think differently about sin in your life than you once did. As an unbeliever, sin may not have defiled your conscience to the degree that it does now that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. 
If there is known and open sin in your life as a believer, one of the gifts, and it is a gift, one of the gifts of the Spirit and of God to you is to defile or make guilty your conscience before Him so that you live in a state of guilt for a time. And so repentance deals with this guilt that you have before a holy God. You begin to think differently about it. By grace, God has given you this ability to think differently about sin, and then because you think differently about it, you see it as an affront to the holy God, and as something that defiles your conscience, you then try to turn from it. But as we said earlier in our first meeting, it's not just a turning from sin to nothingness. It's turning from sin to Christ and embracing Him by faith, confessing your sins, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. So when we read this verse, and surely someone in the room, starting with me, is going to sense some type of conviction when we begin to look at these words individually. I hope to go through all six of these words quickly, but to give some sense of what they mean. And as we give some sense of what they mean, then perhaps we're going to see that, yes, I have indeed sinned before God in this way, and I stand in need of repentance before Him. That's the right thing to do every day before God and Christ. It's especially the right thing to do on this day before you partake of these elements which represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ, if there is sin in your heart and you are convicted and guilty of that sin, repent of it. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. Or if you will not, don't partake of the supper. We are of the mind that holds to the biblical teaching of the Lord's Supper. The supper is for a believer in good standing with God who is repentant, repenting presently of sin. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're holier than the next person. It, it means that you realize, yes, I have sinned before God and I want to rid myself of it under His praise, honor, and glory. So you repent. You ask forgiveness. You have a sorrow in your heart over it and you deal with it and then you partake of the supper. It's not often we hear anymore what Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, that some sleep. And you can read that rightly and justly as some have died. Their lives have ended because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. No doubt some would say, you actually, really believe that. So let me give you a quick and ready answer. I actually really believe that. That's the seriousness of the supper. I also know God is full of grace. I also know that every one of us professing Christians have at some time or another approached the table in a way not honoring to God, and He in mercy has extended mercy to us again. But knowing the things that we do, living in the life that we are living in, one of the greatest ways that we can sin against God is to sin against the light that we have. And what I mean by that is to sin even when we know better. 
It's not sin and ignorance. But it's sin against light. What a grievous sin that is. So let's look at verse 31. And we're going to see how these progress from the beginnings of bitterness in the heart all the way down to malice. And we're going to give a definition of all of these, Lord helping us. John MacArthur in his commentary on these verses says that these words progress from natural vices all the way down into verse 32 of supernatural virtues. Let's look at the natural vices first. These are things that we are to put away. Six, you'll number them, six unchristian attitudes to put away from you. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. None of these things accord with the Spirit of God that is in you as a believer. And when they manifest themselves in your life, then necessarily the verse just preceding tells us that we have grieved the Spirit of God. So let's look at the first. And with each one of these, I think we best look at these with a real heart inspection. I'm not trying to just define the word so that we can leave here with some definition. What we're doing is defining them and then applying them to ourselves and asking honestly before God, is this in me? And if it is, God, help me. May he grant me repentance so that I can turn from it and not be categorized. No Christian should be categorized by the things in verse 31, yet all Christians should be categorized by the things in verse 32. So this follows the pattern that we've seen in all of these verses. There is a negative and a positive and then a motive. And so the negative first is all bitterness. Though these words are very closely connected to one another, I think we can distinguish a few things about them. Bitterness is defined by some as a smoldering resentment. The spirit of irritability that keeps a person in perpetual animosity, making them sour and venomous. Now don't answer the question, have you ever known someone like that? Answer the question, are you a person like that? The best way to approach things like this is not to try to apply them to someone else. But it's to pray and ask the Spirit of God to search your own heart. In a figurative sense, the word speaks to anything that acts on the mind as poison does on the body. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, to pursue peace with all people, and holiness, without, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up may cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What do you do with bitterness when you see it in your heart? Because realizing if it is not dealt with here, and I think this is the impetus behind the writer of the Hebrews, when you see the root of bitterness... That is the time to
to deal with it. Because if you do not, it will grow into wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and end in malice. And notice that these are ways that we relate to one another. While these things certainly govern your relationship with God and Christ, more so they govern your relationships with those around you. You're not to be bitter. You're not to to act out in wrath or anger. So the second word, to differentiate, this is bitterness that has manifest and is now growing. It has not been cut off at its root. The root has not been severed. It's allowed to to grow and to to bear fruit. And the first fruit that bitterness produces, according to Paul here, is wrath. Wrath can be defined as a wild rage or an overflow of anger. Is that befitting a Christian? A wild overflow of rage and anger. Is that depicting the grace and mercy that has been given you in Christ? Is that doing anyone around you any good? Is that showing how you have become the salt of the earth and the light of the world when you and I fly off the handle in a rage with wrath? Remember, Paul says, let it be put away from you. The second, or excuse me, the third word, a more general term, and interestingly, we'll we'll see how we've already dealt with it in this paragraph. Here, anger, which some define as an internal smoldering, brooding on anger, not putting it in its place and confessing and repenting of it, but nursing it, nursing bitterness to the point that it gets to wrath and then anger, Notice, if you back up just a few verses, we've already read it this morning. In verse 26, we read, be angry, with the quick qualifier, yet not unto sin, or do not sin. So in one place, Paul is commending a righteous anger, which acts because of the glory of God or the truth of Scripture or some aspect of the gospel as being drugged through the mud. There is a place, and if you're wondering what that place is, you can go back and listen to that sermon on verse 26. There is a place for righteous anger, yet not unto sin. But notice here when we get down to verse 32, Paul is speaking of anger as this nursing of bitterness. This is what is to be put away. Clamor, (coughs) wrath and anger exploding into public abuse is the way Ian Hamilton defines it. John MacArthur, who's always good at defining words, he says this is a shout of outcry or strife, a public outburst, a complete loss of control. This is clamor. And again, does this befit the life of a Christian? What does Paul say about clamor? Let it be put away from you. He moves on from that to evil speaking, or think of this as being defined as slander or defaming one another. 
Interestingly enough, this is, according to some one writer, the stock in trade of Satan to slander, to defame. Does it have any place in the heart and life of a Christian? Absolutely not. What do we do? We put it away from us by grace. We put these things away so that we do not end up in the end of verse 32 in all malice. How could we define this word? We could define this as John Calvin defined it, the depravity of mind that is opposed to humanity and all fairness. Malice is giving bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speech its full head. The root of all vices. Listen to the way H.C.G. Mole describes this word. He says, it is a vicious disposition. The deep unkindness of the self-centered, Christless heart. This is malice. Is it any wonder that Paul says this is to be put away from you? It does not befit you as a Christian. Bottom line, these have no place in the life of a Christian. Before we move on to verse 32, let's just think for a moment on these six unchristian attitudes and ask honestly before the Lord, are there any measure of these things in my heart? If there is, would you be so gracious to me yet again to grant repentance unto me that I might put these things away? I don't want to be known as one who professes Christ and at the same time, with the same mouth and the same tongue, one who expresses bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speech, and malice in my heart. We're going to see the positive counterpart that is to fill the void of putting all these things away. Anytime you read in Scripture, especially in Paul, when he says put something away, almost immediately he's going to tell you what to put in its place. So this here, first of all, is a heart and mind swept clean. And then with this new and clean slate, he begins to write what should take the place. And just know that these things in verse 31 all come natural to us. It is more natural for us to be bitter than it is to be kind. It is more natural for us to express ourselves in wrath, anger, and clamor than kindness and compassion and forgiveness. I read this week in something unconnected to this study of Ephesians, but I thought, how well said is this? And man, it really pricked my heart. And I think it may be the definition of someone who professes Christ, but yet more often than not finds themselves living in verse 31. I don't know who Jordan Thomas is, but these are his words. He says, Are you one who can spot a needle of sin in a haystack of grace? What a piercing question. 
Is your constitution, is your spirit of such a nature that with all of this grace around you, that you seem to more often than not pinpoint what he calls the needle of sin. He says, if this is you, then you may very well not be under grace. You may be under delusion. But then, on the other hand, he says, as Christians, we should cultivate the ability to spot a needle of grace in a haystack of sin. See the difference? The first is what comes natural and easy to us. To see the sin in a brother's eye. The one small speck in his eye. What we need to, Lord willing, and given much grace of the Spirit, be able to do is to find the needle of grace there and then to encourage it. Now you're not hearing me say that there's not a place and time to point out sin. All we got to do is turn the page, get into chapter 5, and we're going to see there that it is the responsibility of a Christian to expose darkness. But that should be a fearful activity that is done with weakness and trembling before the Lord. It's a responsibility that oftentimes we have to step up to. Can't let it go undone. But I don't see it as something here that we should just be energized every moment of every day to look forward to exposing sin in someone's life or in someone else's life. But let's get back to the point here in verse 31, moving into verse 32. What is to be put into this heart that is swept clean of these vices? I wonder how many of you mothers, perhaps a father or two, have ever directed your children's attention to verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. I mean, what, what do you do with a child who expresses bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice, right? You point them to verse 32. Be kind. Be tender-hearted. Well, that's the same thing. It's not just applicable to a child. It's applicable to us as adults. And again, notice the absolute simplicity with which Paul speaks and his expectation. Could anything be more simple? Could he have gotten his point across any more clearly to us than with these words, be kind? You'll know the name Augustine or Augustine. It depends on whether you're a theologian or a philosopher, the way that you pronounce it. Augustine lived what was categorized by some as a deeply immoral life. It is his testimony in which he says at one point he sat down after his mother's long prayers for him and he heard a voice, an audible voice, a real voice, not some mysterious audible voice, but a real voice telling him to take up and read. Take up the scriptures and read. And he began to read and was converted. But go back before that. While he was immersed in this deeply immoral life by his own admission, if you read some of his writings, 
the pastor or the bishop that he was in contact with. His name was Ambrose. An interesting testimony here is borne by Augustine when he says, I was drawn to him for one reason. He was kind to me. Even though I was so deeply immoral and lashed out at everyone around me, this godly man was the only person that ever acted towards me in kindness. And that was one of the things that he equates to being used of God to bring him to faith in Christ, to lead him to actually read the scriptures. So note the powerful place of kindness. Think of Jesus Christ as he interacted with sinners in kindness and in goodness. Paul simply says to begin verse 32, be kind to one another. It would go back to another thing that we all teach our children, right? And the expectation of them Treat your brother or your sister the way that you would want them to treat you. Now, can we broaden that out into all of church life? Treat your brother or sister in Christ the way that you would want them to treat you. How transformed church life would be in so many places if we could all begin to live in verse 32 and have this be our default by the help of the spirit kindness to one another kindness is the very opposite the exact exact total different end of the spectrum of malice kindness Sinclair Ferguson says kindness to others is rooted in our own sense of how much we have received and needed the kindness of God. So let me ask you, have you needed the kindness of God? Have you received it? Yes, we've needed and yes, we have received it. Our kindness to one another is rooted in this. This is the foundation. How can I be kind to you? with remaining sin and dwelling in my heart, with every tendency to lash out in bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, evil speech, and malice, how can I ever have any hopes of acting toward you in real and sincere kindness? Only based upon the foundation that I have received the same from Christ. It's not in me, naturally speaking, to be kind, nor do I suppose that is that it is in some of you naturally. But when we realize how kind God has been to us in Christ, how good we have the foundation then set and the ability given to be kind to one another. So just like the first verse, there was a progression from bitterness, bitterness not cut at the root, grows into wrath, anger, clamor, evil speak, ends in malice. I think we can follow the same progression in verse 32. Kindness, once cultivated, once pursued, then grows into tender-heartedness. And just think of the word 
an equivalent word here as compassion. Compassion. I love the way John MacArthur defines this biblical term. He said, it is to have a gut-wrenching empathy with your brother or sister in Christ. If you are tender-hearted and compassionate, whatever they're going through, it's as if you are going through it as well. That's why Paul would tell us in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. It is this type of gut-wrenching empathy and tender-heartedness and compassion that kindness produces. Most likely you know someone who has acted towards you with a tender heart and compassion. And it made a significant impact on your life. What you were going through, they took upon themselves and it seemed like they walked through this with you to the same degree. And where does it lead? Where does it end? Forgiving one another. Or being gracious with one another is another faithful way to translate the word. To deal with one another in grace. Do you appreciate and enjoy when people deal with you in a gracious manner? I do. Extending grace, allowing a misspoken word here or there, allowing a misstep here or there, being great, gracious, not seeing things exactly eye to eye on lesser non-salvific matters. We can be gracious with one another, but really the heart of the verse is forgiving one another. And just like all of these other things preceding state a motive, we have the greatest of motives given here in verse 32. Why should I forgive you if you sin against me? And why should you forgive me when I sin against you? Because God in Christ has forgiven us both. Notice these two words. Even as, or just as. We are to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. What does this mean? Just as freely, generously, wholeheartedly, spontaneously, eagerly, and any other words that you want to add, that is the degree that we are to forgive one another. Seventy times seven. Now, let me raise an issue that I hesitate to raise, but I'm said it already so here we go there is in the thinking of some that as Christians we are to withhold forgiveness until there is full and true repentance on the offending party and in that some would state we are acting most godlike God does not extend forgiveness until we repent would be the thinking he stands ready to grant repentance but doesn't actually give it until the offending party 
repentance. And I've been involved in many discussions, heard many sermons. One of the unique things in my Christian experience is I heard a preacher stand and preach this, and then another preacher follow up behind him and correct him. The only time I've ever heard that or been a part of that. Now, granted, there is some truth in that, but I think there is a blurring of the lines of what it means to truly forgive and what it means to pardon. What it means to completely wipe the slate clean. And really, if we peel back the layers far enough, far enough, before we repented, before we put faith in Christ, God had acted towards us. His acting towards us then produced the faith and repentance. So as well-meaning as I think that idea is that we withhold true forgiveness until the offending party repents, could it be that our acting in kindness and compassion and tender-hearted forgiving them is what will spur or bring their repentance toward us? Could be. Can we guarantee that that will happen? Absolutely not. Is this a point that I'm willing to, to argue and belabor with someone? No. But I think the expectation here is that believers are those who are forgiving of one another. Notice, even as God in Christ forgave you. And let's be clear about some things here. We as believers do not acquire forgiveness by forgiving. But we forgive because we've been forgiven. Two important points to make. There are some that would teach you if you cannot forgive, or if you will not forgive, then you'll never be made right in the sight of God. Well, the, acts, the opposite is actually more to the point and to be true. We do forgive because we've been forgiven. How can I extend forgiveness to you if you were to wrong me only fully because I know what it is like for God to have forgiven me such great offenses in His sight? Listen to these words by Charles Hodge. He said, God forgives us in Christ. Outside of Christ, he is, in virtue of his holiness and justice, a consuming fire. But in Christ, he is suffering, abundant, in mercy, and ready to forgive. Notice the point that Paul is making here in verse 32. Even as God in Christ forgave you. We need to, to settle down on the gospel aspect of this verse. If you're forgiven before God, it's only because of Christ's work in your place. God does not just wipe over your sin and forgive you. He forgives you in Christ. What does that mean? 
It means that your sin has been forgiven because Christ took it upon himself. He made payment for it. He atoned, purchased you back, redemption. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Can I state the very obvious fact here? There is no Christianity without Christ. Virtuous living is not enough. Doing the right thing is not enough to justify you in the sight of God. Being obedient to your parents is not enough. Recognizing the omnipotence of God in creation is not enough. You are forgiven by God in Christ. One of the things that's going to be depicted by our observing communion together. Children, listen to me. I know this, if you don't, often I remember as a child myself, I would see these plates come by with this little cup and a little cracker, and I had no idea really what was being done. Now, I want you to realize, and adults too, we are not of the sort that believe that these elements actually become the body and blood of Christ. These things represent the body and blood of Christ. And so when we're told here that in Christ, God has forgiven us, He has forgiven us because of Christ's broken body and His shed blood typified here in the observance of the supper. When you take these elements as a believer, and again, I'm going to stress to you, the Lord's Supper is for believers. You eat and drink to your own peril if you observe communion as a non-believer or as a believer who is in unrepentant sin. You take these two elements, and what they represent to you is the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The small cracker represents the broken body of Jesus Christ, and you are taking these and internalizing them. This is a picture of faith. You are taking them into your inmost being. And by faith, we have done that with the actual breaking of Christ's body and the shedding of of his blood. Peter uses, or excuse me, yeah, graphic language Christ uses to eat his body and to drink his blood. He wasn't meaning literally. He was meaning in a figurative sense that we internalize by faith what he has done in our stead. And how long do we do this? Well, until the Lord returns. But back to this ending point in verse 32. Once the heart has been swept clean of these vices, these sins, what goes in its place? Kindness, compassion, forgiveness.
all ways that we interact with one another. And again, I don't remember whose words these were, but how transformed our families would be, how transformed our church life would be, how transformed our society would be if these three simple, yet at the same time, profound virtues were found in all of us. Kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. These are the very things to great degree that we have found in Christ. Kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. So we have the commission to go and be salt and light. How so? Through kindness, compassion, forgiveness, which gives the foundation for the preaching of the gospel. How many do you suppose will hear the preaching of Christ's gospel that comes out of a mouth of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speech, and malice? follow-up question would be how many would hear that same gospel preached from one who is kind compassionate and forgiving well it's true that's the Lord's work only he can renew and change a heart but yet here we are standing in disobedience or obedience to these things God help us Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these simple commands in Scripture. We pray for grace to obey. We pray for the granting of repentance. We pray for a changed nature. That you would help us to see the importance of these three simple virtues. Kindness, which is itself a fruit of the Spirit, compassion, and an attitude of forgiveness. Father, help us to exemplify these things in our life. And Lord, now as we approach the table, we're thankful for this ordinance you have given to the church, a perpetual, continual ordinance of remembering the crucifixion and the giving of our Savior, of Himself for us. Father, help us even now to do by Your Spirit a thorough examination of our heart to see if there is anything there that should be repented of before You. Any known sin, anything that defiles the conscience, any sin against a brother or a sister in Christ, Lord, help us to deal swiftly with these things. And Lord, we pray for the increase in our own lives of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, even as we have found these things in Christ. Bless this time of communion, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.